thing I forgot was, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. It's good to have you here. Uh, we're glad you're here and looking forward to getting to meet you. Well, this morning, um, the title of the message I want to bring is Jesus, the Founder and Perfecter. My aim this morning is that we'll be stirred in our worship of Jesus Christ and that we'll be strengthened to endure as followers of Jesus Christ. And to do that, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not going to spend a, a focus in one particular passage, but what I want to do is look to a number of passages to draw some connections of Scripture together, which it is my prayer will just really deepen your worship as you think of who Christ is and will strengthen you in enduring as a follower of Christ. I want to begin by going to Hebrews chapter 12. So please turn in God's word to Hebrews 12. I'm going to read um, the first 11 verses of Hebrews chapter 12. We might say this is kind of um, the, the overall theme of the message. It's where we'll be starting and we'll be ending in Hebrews 12 as well. So Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now this passage, as we read, is is very realistic about the difficulties we face in the Christian life. It doesn't hide the fact that the Christian life has difficulty in it. Painful difficulty in it. And this passage particularly has been a tremendous significance in my own life. I don't like suffering. I don't like difficulty. It's hard for me to endure it's hard for me to trust God when it's, hard, when it's difficult, when there's suffering, when I can't see a resolution. This passage is clear that all Christians, all true sons of the Father, will experience discipline. We'll all experience this discipline from our Heavenly Father. And this discipline is not primarily about the sin we commit, but it's about growth in our trust and love for God. So look at verse 11. This is one of the great understatements of Scripture. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And because of that, in verse 3, 
there's this recognition that we are tempted to grow weary or faint-hearted in this discipline. It's painful. It's not pleasant. We don't, we don't find joy in pains. We're not masochists. We don't find pleasure in pain. And in the midst of that pain, we are tempted to grow weary, to be faint-hearted. We're tempted not to endure. So as we look at this passage, I I just want to very briefly, with a few key words, kind of bring um, the main points of this passage together. Firstly, the theme in this passage we see in verse 1, it's this exhortation, let us run with endurance. There's the theme. Let us run with endurance. This is what this passage is about. Exhorting and encouraging the saints not to give up in the painful discipline, but to run with endurance. What's the context? Verse 7. The context is this experience of suffering, which is the discipline from the Lord. So verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. That's the context. If you're a son of God, you've got to experience he will treat you as a son. And one of the things he does is he brings discipline into our lives. What's the goal? Verse 10, God disciplines us for our good that we might share his holiness. And verse 11, that we might experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now that second point, the context it's hard for us to wrestle with. Hang on. It's hard to wrap my mind around the loving father bringing pain into my life. Is that the way a father should function towards his son? It's hard for us to understand the purposes of God. But here in verse 10, we see God is not mean. He doesn't have joy seeing us suffer. He's not there saying, you know, you're a pretty pathetic Christian. Let me slap you around a bit, get your attention. No. We see in verse 10, God disciplines us for our good. It's out of his love, the love of the Father, treating us as his sons. He brings discipline into our life that we might share his holiness. His goal is for us, as it were, to be drawn in to the glories and the perfections and the joys of intimate fellowship with him, drawn in to his holiness. And that we might experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, the the fruit that is manifested in our lives as we increasingly experience the ministry and the empowering of his Spirit in us. So that's the goal. What is the way? How do we get here? What's what's the journey like? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Or to kind of invert this, if you want to endure, sorry, I'll say it this way, you're not going to endure unless you're looking to Jesus. The way to endure is to look to Jesus. There's no other way to endure the discipline we receive as sons of the Father apart from looking to Jesus. That's the way we're saved. How are we saved? Look to Jesus in faith. And how do we endure? How do we live as saved people? By looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter. Let me say one or two things about these two words. Founder. Um, I think just an initial reading through Hebrews, it's hard to figure out what's actually going on with this word. The idea here of the word founder is kind of like pioneer. Jesus blazed the trail. He went out ahead. He he made a path. He showed the way. This is what Jesus did in making salvation possible. He is the founder, the one who establishes, the one who makes it possible that we could be saved. He's the founder, and he's the perfecter. Not only has Jesus made salvation possible, it's also through him that faith endures. So this idea of perfecter has the idea of bringing to completion. Jesus makes the way possible for our salvation. And having made that way possible, he is the one that will bring to completion 
our faith, bring to full maturity, bring us all the way home, he will complete the work that he has begun. He's the founder and he is the perfecter. And so as we look at this passage, in order for us to endure the discipline of our loving Heavenly Father, in order for us to move towards holiness, we're to look to Jesus regarding his work as the founder or the pioneer, the founder of our faith, and his work in perfecting, in bringing to full maturity our faith. So these two aspects are the broad outline of the message this morning. We look to Jesus the founder, and we look to Jesus the perfecter. I want to endure in the faith. I want to grow in my love for God. And I read here the guidance for, for me to do that. And I want you to endure in the faith. I want you to grow in your love for God. Let me just say again, life is filled with much complexity, much difficulty, much suffering. And how desperately we need the message here this morning. There are times as we're experiencing suffering or difficulty, I'm going to use some images here, it might feel like your emotions, your feelings are so intense, you can almost feel like your, your heart's about to explode. You feel so weighed down, so pressured with the experience of suffering. This passage is realistic about that. It's why we need it. At other times, maybe, the experience is so overwhelming, you might say, so weighty, so oppressive, so suffocating, we cry out to God and say, I'm at the end. I'm not sure I can go another day. I wish I was dead. And all of us, in different ways, can maybe use different words, different metaphors to experience to explain or communicate that feeling of the intensity of suffering, of this discipline of the Lord. So this scripture is, is not minimizing this and saying, oh, here's a nice little thing to help. No, this scripture is being completely and thoroughly realistic. It is painful. It is intense. And so the realism of this passage about the significance of the discipline should be matched with the realism of the exhortation to look to Christ. This is not, yeah, look to Jesus. This is not the Sunday school answer. How do you fix it? Jesus. No, this is the most profound, most true, most necessary thing for us if we are to endure the discipline of the Lord. Look to Jesus. So firstly, let's look to Jesus, the founder. Look to Jesus, the pioneer. This word founder appears another time in the book of Hebrews, earlier on in the book. So I want you to turn there to Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to read the passage um, where the writer introduces this term. Because these are, these are closely aligned in, in the writer's purpose to Read chapter 2 in light of chapter 12, and chapter 12 in light of chapter 2. The, the, the author is using these words to draw these connections for us. So look to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. 
That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I trust you see, as we read that, just the the parallels in this passage to what we read in Hebrews chapter 12. As you read this passage, I just want to make three observations to kind of draw these connections and draw the, some key points out. Firstly, though being without sin, in Jesus endured the discipline of the Lord. He wasn't, see, the discipline is not because Jesus sinned. The discipline is because he was his son. So discipline is not primarily about addressing sin in our life. It's about primarily addressing maturity in our lives. It says here that Jesus was made perfect through suffering, which when we first read that is one of those, I don't understand that. What's that talking about? What does it mean that he was made perfect? Well, Jesus never sinned, but his righteousness we might say, was brought to full completion or full maturity or made fully manifest. The discipline he experienced and his faithfulness and righteousness in that, dis- that discipline showed the perfection of his sonship. First point. Second point. Jesus truly and genuinely shared in our human flesh and blood experience. He is truly the one who has gone before us in human experience. He went all the way, suffering to the point of death, that he might make propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the founder. Go back to what I said earlier. Sometimes the suffering feels so intense, it feels like our heart is about to explode. Or it feels so weighty. We feel so weighed down, so oppressed. We're almost suffocating in this sense of suffering. And we might be tempted to say, Jesus, don't you care? But if we're looking to Jesus, the founder, we can say, Jesus, you know exactly what I'm experiencing. Only more so. He's the one who has gone before. He has truly and genuinely experienced the nature of discipline from the Father. He knows our experience. And three, in verse 18, we see the point of application. That because Jesus righteously and perfectly endured... Suffering when tempted, he is able to help us when we are being tempted. Jesus is the founder in the most marvelous and glorious way. This passage, as we look at this idea of Jesus being the founder and the one who shares in flesh and blood, this passage particularly draws attention to his crucifixion. That is, the ultimate experience of suffering in temptation. This is, we might say, the preeminent example of Jesus' suffering. But it also prompts us, this passage, in some of the ways these things are phrased, it also prompts us to reflect on more than just his ultimate suffering or his most extreme suffering, but also to reflect on suffering in, ge- in general. It says he shared in our flesh and blood experience. Certainly in the suffering and death, but in his flesh and blood, in his humanity, in his life over the years. He genuinely suffered and genuinely suffered in more places 
than just his death. So it prompts, us, prompts me to think about that suffering. As we look at Jesus' ministry, we see really brought to the fore by the gospel writers his suffering and death, but also particularly his suffering at the beginning of his ministry, the 40 days in the wilderness. So that's where I want us to turn next. I'm, I'm, build, I'm trying to build these connections. You might be wondering, where is Pastor Rodney going? Hopefully, as we go, you, you'll just, these connections will become more and more apparent to you. So let's go over to Matthew chapter 4, because I want us to read the particular detail that God gives us of the suffering of Jesus that he experienced in the wilderness. We don't have um, a lot of detail throughout his life. There are a few places that are particularly detailed. We might ask, what was it like for Jesus as the son experiencing the discipline of the father? What was it like for him to experience this suffering? How did he endure? Well, we know he did. It's like, well, that's what he did. I mean, he's the son of God. But he shed in our flesh and blood. How actually did he do it in his flesh and blood? And so we see this in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus perfectly endures physical hardship without food, the physical hardship of the wilderness. This is not a resort by the beach with um, the buffet that never is exhausted. This is in the wilderness. This is suffering, um, hunger, physical deprivation. But also we see him enduring the temptation. The temptation to embrace the devil's distortion of reality. So as I read this passage beginning in Matthew 4 verse 1, I want to ask you this, I want to have this question in the back of your mind. How did Jesus endure the temptation and suffering? How did he endure? So let's begin reading Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Another one of those biblical understatements, Right? He was famished. I mean, he was starving, right? Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So we see here recorded for us three particular temptations by Satan. And three times Jesus responds by quoting scripture. Now these quotations by scripture um, are, are not magical incantations. It's not like you throw out a verse that kind of zaps Satan in some way. They're not like magical words that we say. What's happening here? Jesus is quoting scripture and in so doing, verbally affirming not just the truth of God, but verbally affirming him living in dependence upon the truth of God. He's revealing his love for God and his trust in God. He's revealing how he was viewing his circumstances. We might call 
this, that as Jesus quotes from Scripture, he brings to his mind, he, he articulates in the face of the lies and the deception and the evil of the devil, he's articulating reality. He's, a, he's verbalizing from Scripture. We might say his worldview or his thought world or his understanding of reality. He's looking at the devil. He's hearing the words of the devil. And he's identifying the lies and the deception that is there. And says, you say that, but this is what is true. Here is how I'm living. Here is how I am viewing God. Here is what will motivate me. Here is what will direct my decisions. Here is what will direct my ultimate desires. Now, as you look at these responses of Jesus, each of these responses by Jesus is a quotation from Deuteronomy. Now, that's kind of interesting. Why Deuteronomy? In fact, they're the quotation from Deuteronomy from only two chapters in Deuteronomy that are within the vicinity of two chapters of each other. So, we could stay here, and this would be a great sermon. But I don't want to stay here because I I want us to to see what's happening here in Matthew 4 and deepen in our understanding of the significance of what what Jesus is doing. I want us to really explore how is Jesus being faithful as a son in discipline? How is he functioning as the founder of our faith? So I want to turn to Deuteronomy 8 to look at the first temptation, or more particularly to Deuteronomy 8 to look at Jesus' response to the first temptation. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm hoping you're writing these verses down so that you can go back and reflect some more. As we read this, you're going to see a, a number of resonances, both with Matthew 4 and what we've read in Hebrews uh, particularly, just, just as an example, we see in Matthew 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And here we read that God led the people of Israel into the wilderness for 40 years. So, so just in some of the obvious details, we're prompted to go, hang on, what's happening here? How are these passages related? So not only is Jesus quoting from Deuteronomy 8, but we see these ties to what's happening in Jesus' life with what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So let me read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your food did not, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines the, his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the land he has given you. So we see here, as Jesus quotes from this passage, we see him reflecting on his awareness that his 40 days in the wilderness is not arbitrary. This is not something that Jesus thought, well, what could be a good way to start ministry? Maybe maybe, uh, some time in the wilderness. Let's do 40 days. Let's just do 40 days. 
No, Jesus knows this is not random. This is not arbitrary. His 40 days in the wilderness is, is a reflection, is part of the reality of him living as a faithful son before his father. His father leads him into the wilderness. Why? Deuteronomy 8 tells us, for a period of discipline. He's being led into the wilderness that he might experience suffering in temptation, discipline that he might be made perfect. So we see here Jesus, our founder, enduring suffering and temptation in the wilderness. Israel did not do so well at this. But Jesus shows his faithfulness that where Israel failed, he was faithful. Perfectly faithful to endure this suffering in the wilderness, completely trusting the Father, not doubting the Father's love, not questioning the Father's goodness, not questioning the Father's plans. Jesus is being faithful. Again, look at Deuteronomy 8, verse 5 and 6. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. What's Jesus doing here? Perfectly perfectly, um, performing the commandments of the Lord. Without error. Without gap. He is faithful in every way. Jesus is enduring the discipline of God his Father. Walking in his ways. Living in the fear of God. So the devil's temptation is not merely a physical hunger temptation. Let's think about the devil's temptation in light of what we read here in Deuteronomy 8. What's the devil's temptation? Reject God's good and wise purposes for suffering in the wilderness these 40 days. Turn turn this into bread. Escape this suffering. Here is a way out of suffering. And the way out is a way out that is saying, I don't like this suffering. This suffering is not good. This suffering is not beneficial. This is not according to God's plan. There's something better. So this temptation to eat is, is a temptation to utter rebellion against the holy wisdom and goodness and love of his heavenly father. And you get the weight of this quote when you read what's happening here in Deuteronomy 8. But what does Jesus do? In his perfection, he trusts the Father's goodness. He trusts his Father's love for him. The Father is treating him as a son. Jesus perfectly trusted every word that comes from the mouth of God. So when God tested Jesus, what did it reveal? Righteousness. Perfect love. Complete trust, not a rebellious thread, not even a sniff, complete trust. Here is Jesus, the founder of our faith, who blazed the trial of faithfulness, that he might be the faithful redeemer in our place. Let's look at the second temptation Jesus Um, experiences. And in the second temptation, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So let's turn back two chapters to Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he commanded you. Again, notice this theme of perfectly obeying the Father. But whereas the first temptation, we might say, is concerning Jesus' faithfulness to submit to the test of God, this temptation is about Jesus not testing God. Here in verse 16, there's this reference to Massah. You might want to write in your notes here, Exodus 17. What happened there? Here, the people of Israel have come out of Egypt... They haven't had food. They complain against God. God gives them some manna. Then they're complaining about water. Where's the water? And so they're in the stage of complaining against God that there's no water. 
And so Exodus 17.3, we read that the people said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They were testing God. They were questioning God. What kind of a God are you? What kind of a God would do this? How is this loving? That's their attitude. They're testing the Lord. There's a, a tone of accusation here. This testing is not merely accusation, but there's an effort to coerce God into acting. They're trying to force God's hand. What did you do here? Look, what kind of a God did this? Give us some water. This is a, a bargaining with God. A doubting God and a bargaining with God. It's almost like if you'll do this, then maybe we'll trust you. One commentator notes, in essence, this testing of the Lord is an attempt to turn faith into sight. And here we see the devil, in Matthew 4, tempting Jesus in his wilderness suffering, as it were, to turn his faith into sight. Do this and watch God do something amazing for you. But Jesus fully trusts in God's faithfulness. Jesus does not doubt the wisdom of God and the goodness of God in this wilderness suffering. He's not resentful for being in the wilderness. He's not trying to manipulate God, as it were, and bring God down to a human level. And so the devil tempts him. Turn your faith into sight. Tangibly, get God to do something to validate your faith. And Jesus says, I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm not going to rebel against him. I love him. I trust him. I'll be faithful to him. I see him as a faithful God, good and loving and wise. And I'm in this suffering with a submissive heart. It's the second temptation. Let's look at the third temptation. In the third temptation, Jesus responds, and he responds from Deuteronomy 6 and chapter 13. Here, the devil is tempting Jesus to worship him in exchange for the kingdoms of the world, for the glory of earthly existence. But Jesus, full of faith, has perfect allegiance to God. Jesus has not forgotten the power and the glory and the faithfulness of God. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat in a full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve And by his name you shall swear, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you off the face of the earth. So here we see Jesus enduring physical suffering in the wilderness. And this physical suffering did not induce him to seek momentary physical pleasure. It did not cause his eyes, as it were, to go off eternal realities and spiritual realities and just fixate on the pleasures and the experience of this earth. But Jesus matured his complete confidence and trust in God and his conviction that life is more more than about mere physical reality. So he said to Satan, get get behind me. I will not fall down and worship you. God and God alone I will worship. And so we see Jesus here in each of these temptations responding. Responding out of a full love and submissiveness to his father. Responding in perfect obedience. He is the founder of our faith. He endured suffering without sin and unbelief. Jesus was faithful where Israel was unfaithful. Jesus revealed and manifested the reality that he is the true son of God. He was perfect in righteousness, perfect in every way. And so perfectly suited 
to become the merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But not only do we see here Jesus qualified to be our redeemer, the founder of our faith, but because of his faithfulness in suffering, he is able to help us when we are being tempted. Hebrews 2.18. So, as we kind of go towards the end of this message, this leads us to the second main point. We are to look to Jesus, the perfecter. He is the founder and he is the perfecter of our faith. So let's jump back to Hebrews 12. I said we're going to be starting there and concluding there. So Hebrews in chapter 12. In order for us to run with endurance, we are to look to Jesus. We are to consider him who endured. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Certainly in his death, but certainly in the beginning of his ministry, as we've been looking there in Matthew chapter 4. Consider him who endured. So the first thing that God directs us here is to consider Jesus' endurance that we might follow in his steps and endure after him. We are to view God's discipline like Jesus viewed God's discipline. Let's go through and briefly review the temptations Jesus endured. So the devil tempted Jesus to reject God's purposes in this first temptation for, for suffering. And Jesus trusted in God's wise discipline. He was made perfect through suffering. What does Hebrews 12 tell us? That we are made perfect through suffering. It is through the suffering of discipline that we share in God's holiness. Just as Jesus was submissive to his father's purposes and plans and leading him into the wilderness for a period of suffering, so there is this call for us to, to consider Jesus who endured. How did he endure? He saw the purposes of God in that discipline. And this passage in Hebrews reminds us, what's the purpose of God in his discipline of us? That we might share in God's holiness. If we do not have the outlook Jesus had on suffering and discipline, we will not endure. We will succumb to the devil's temptation to, as it were, want the easy out of escape from the physical experience of suffering. Our our focus will be on physical experience, on physical reality, rather than on the spiritual reality of God's faithfulness and goodness. How are we to endure in the midst of suffering and the discipline of the Lord? It is hard. But here's here's the, the way for us to endure. Look to Jesus, the founder of our faith. Look to how he endured. We might say with Jesus, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The father is treating me as a son, and I live in dependence upon every one of his words, because he is perfectly faithful. He has A good plan for me. He loves me. So turning from considering that first temptation to the second temptation, when we experience suffering, the suffering of discipline, we are also tempted to put God to the test. We've all said, God, what are you doing here? Don't you love me? Don't you know my experience? Don't you know how overwhelmed I feel? Where are you? Like the Israelites, why did you bring us out of Egypt to bring us into the desert that we might die here? 
Jesus, or Father, why did you redeem me so that I could suffer and be miserable? We're tempted not to trust God's good intentions. We're tempted to join with those Israelites. We're tempted to pray prayers of coercion or manipulation. God, if you really love me, then you would do this. God, if you really love me, then you would perform this. God, if you really love me, then you would miraculously remove this suffering right now. But we're to look to Jesus and follow his example. In his suffering, he understood God's purposes, his wise purposes, his perfect purposes, his good purposes. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 6 and 8. Um, Let me just begin in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is difficult. The endurance of faith depends on wrestling to submit ourselves to this truth and to grow in our understanding of the broadness and of the greatness of God's love. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. God is loving you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I think of another passage that provokes in us this wrestling to comprehend the character of God. For God so loved the world. There's the motive of love, divine love. For God so loved the world that he what? Sent his son to have a happy, pain-free life? To die. This is part of the process of Christian discipleship. Discipleship is us conforming our thinking and understanding of love to to the reality of love and the true nature of love as revealed in the character and the purposes of God. When we reject the discipline of, of God, we embrace a superficial view of divine love. When we follow Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we are as a pressing in to learn the deeper realities of the character and the purposes of God. Well, the third temptation, as we look at Jesus' experience and we want to follow him, consider him who endured, when we experience the suffering of discipline, we're tempted to live merely for the things of this physical world. We're tempted to worship the things of creation instead of the creator. We're tempted to worship idols of this fallen physical world instead of living in the light of the spiritual reality of the eternal God and our eternal inheritance with him. We're tempted to forget his saving promises and to forget the blessed promises of the ministry of his Holy Spirit presently and the guarantee of the presence of the Spirit into eternity. And so we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, and to follow his example. Look at verse 2 of Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I read that, and I think of Ephesians 2.6, that those who are in Christ have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the spiritual reality of our existence as sons of God. We are united to the one who endured suffering 
and is now at the place of glory at the right hand of the Father. And because of our union with Christ, the founder, perfecter of our faith, we are with him. And our hearts need to be gripped with this spiritual reality. Otherwise, the temptations of the devil will seem reasonable. I feel miserable. This will make me feel better. And that's, that's the, the, the level of our view of reality. The devil wants you to forget spiritual reality. The devil wants you to forget the promises of God. The devil wants you to forget that Jesus endured suffering and is presently at the right hand of the Father. And that we as his children have a guarantee to be in that place with him. As it were, in the full realization of our glory. And we presently are with him because of our union with Christ through his spirit. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, as we live this Christian life, as we're anticipating glory, there is a suffering of the discipline of God that seems painful rather than pleasant. But here in in chapter 12 of Hebrews, God here is encouraging us, endure, endure, endure like Christ that we might share his holiness and that we might experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so in Jesus, God not only shows us how to endure, but he provides the help we need to endure. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and we'll conclude with these verses. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy And find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray.